as somebody who fundamentally believes in the in human beings you keep thinking like this has got to be it like this has got to be the line that people are not going to be willing to cross and then people cross the line Hi everyone and welcome to episode 007 of On My Mind, the first female 007 I might add. Who doesn't love a classic movie reference? With a constant stream of news about Donald Trump, the USA has been on my mind this week and I wanted to speak to someone living over there who I felt might be able to offer us a balanced view. As well as being a good friend of mine, Elizabeth Olivia Norton is a speaker, coach and teacher who's been playing and working in personal expansion for over 25 years. Having once been Elizabeth's client, I can confirm she is a relentless optimist who knows when you are in alignment with your biggest best self, your capacity in life explodes. She believes in laughing loudly and often, even when it all looks like it's going to shit. Elizabeth is solidly standing in the position that love will always pull us through. And in this podcast, we explore everything from Trump, to shame, compassion, our use of language, and of course, my favourite thing, love. For this podcast, Elizabeth joined me remotely from her home state of Wisconsin via a snazzy connection sponsored by my friends at IPDTL.com. If you enjoy the podcast, then of course, share it, tell your friends about it, get it on your social media. If you don't, do none of those things. But if you love it, rate it. It just helps us get the message out there. Let's get stuck into the podcast. Hi. Hi. Okay. Are we ready? So I think, well, yeah, I've tested, I've tested it as far as I can test it. Um, you sound great. I sound like me, which is obviously a good thing. Um, don't want to sound like anybody else. It's me being Adam, not me being anybody else. Um, so yeah, so we're, we're, we're good. We're good. Um, it's all been happening over there, hasn't it? Wow. <laughs> Absolutely. It's been challenging been challenging to keep up for months and it seems to be um, accelerating yeah so we've got some I, escalation and some acceleration i was in sort of i want to say i was in disbelief the other day when i saw the russian summit but i think that is an emotion when i think about the politics not just in your country but everywhere that the <laughs> just kind of like has left me now i just think oh yeah of course he he sided with, you know, uh, a Russian dictator over his own intelligence agencies. And, yeah, I'm talking about Trump, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine what it's like for uh, anybody that's slightly libertarian over there c- to kind of see what it's all about. But pretty, pretty well, stressy. It's, it's been very, very, very interesting because you you keep thinking. I keep thinking as somebody who fundamentally believes in the in human beings. You keep thinking like this has got to be it. Like, this has got to be the line that people are not going to be willing to cross. And then people cross the line and the things get upped. And it's like, I can't believe this. And then the next thing comes along and you're like, I can't believe this either. Wait, wait a minute. I couldn't believe the last thing. And now we've got this. So it's a, it's a really interesting time to be dealing with um, the capacity of, of, unbelievable things happening around you and being conscientious of them happening 
literally while we're watching them happen in real time. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's an interesting experience. And I spend a lot of time in my days supporting people who are struggling with what they're seeing, what they're hearing, how things are changing and changing so quickly. So it's definitely an interesting time to be a human. Yeah, it's become, I, th- I think I read somewhere the other day, like they've called it the post-truth era. So, yeah, just like you just say whatever now. And if it's a lie, well, then the headline gets made and the truth comes out in some sort of sub-article somewhere further down the line. But actually, truth doesn't seem to have a value anymore in, in politics. Well, and it's a challenge for me because my background is in, in sciences and psychology. So... You know, very re- like research-based, and what are the facts, and let's run experiments and see how things work, and and to to watch things happening um, where people um, aren't aren't acknowledging that just happened. No, it didn't. We, yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> and then also being somebody who has been in a an abusive relationship and seeing that dynamic occurring at a cultural level. Um, where you have the experience of um, gaslighting happening um, on a national stage. Um, mm. it, it's, it's fascinating and horrifying at the same time, um, especially in, for somebody like me who is so based on, well, what are the facts? What happened? What are the facts? So, yeah, one of the, um, well, you talked there about gaslighting and, it's something that you hear about when you when you look into like domestic abuse or abusive relationships full stop um and i know that that's part of your story is like having to have sort of be awakened to leave one of those relationships but what was what would you define as an experience of gaslighting some people might not know what that is i guess so the in the uh, gaslighting is when something happens and then often the person that it happened with tells you that that's not what happened and then reframes the experience to leave you confused or diminished or questioning your own experience. So when we have somebody on a national stage like our current president saying, um, you know, he was just in, he was just in the UK, did an interview and then a few hours later said, I didn't say that. So there's a recording of what he said and then saying, I didn't say that. And that's a perfect example of gaslight because there's what's happened and we have a recording of what's happened. And then somebody saying, it didn't happen. Didn't say that, but you did, but I didn't. And, and that leaves people confused. It leaves people questioning their own internal experience, it questions, leaves them questioning what they see, what they hear, what they know to be the truth for them. And it's, a, it's one of the most common things people use in a, an abusive dynamic in order to manipulate the person you're trying to have control over. So and I guess when you look at the, a position of power in you know, the president's office, people have become, I suppose, used to, you know, the occasional white, white lie or whatever. And I I think I heard um, Obama today did a speech. He said, you know, politicians have been lying for years, but when they get caught out, they normally just go, oh, okay, yeah, hands up. 
it wasn't quite like that. But this is someone who's, you know, abusing their position of power, really. Absolutely. And doesn't seem to be bothered by that. Um, and I think one of the things that I'm finding very distinct or um, distressing as, a, as a, a U.S. citizen is how many people in our population um, are okay with it. Um, how many, uh, like I've, I've joked for years, never underestimate the human capacity for denial and um, their ability to um, uh, justify anything that needs to match with what's going on in their head. And seeing people so willing to um, allow a leader to, to so boldly and blatantly um, be untruthful, to lie on a regular basis and be okay with that. I think that's equally as distressing um, as having a leader lie is having people not only be okay with it, but um, justify it and exalt it. Um, that's, that's concerning. We've seen this in history before, and that's concerning. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I know that you can't speak on behalf of everyone in America that has that view, but what's your personal take on why do, why are people letting that happen? Why are people kind of colluding with it, do you think, personally? Um, yeah, personally, I think there's a couple of things. One is that people are scared. Um, you know, when we go into fight or flight, um, our frontal lobes go offline, so we're not using our higher level thinking as a human when we're in this fight, flight, or freeze response. I think a lot of the population is, is scared. And because we don't allow people permission to have those kind of feelings, they're getting stuff down and they're coming out um, as fighting um, or freezing. And so I think people are justifying a lot because, you know, we have large national scale problems besides this, that need to be addressed. And because people now feel like there's somebody who's going to take care of them, whether they do or not, um, I think that helps people um, reduce that fear. The other thing I think is um, a lack in our educational system. So, you know, for me, all arguments eventually distill down to um, how can we teach people how to think well, how can we teach them how to reason? How do we teach them how to um, look at a situation and critically um, evaluate what's happening? Um, and so I think those are two major things. I think we also have, um, and I think this may be a, I've been uh, seeing some research about this um, two kinds of humans, is that we have people who think about large numbers of people, and we have people who think about very small numbers of people. So me and my own, or people who look out and see all humans as our own. Um, you know, and there's been some research that's come out um, around the people who were explorers way back when we were hunter-gatherers, people who were explorers versus people who stayed and took care of everybody at the, at the campsite. Um, and so there's some, some historical human development behind that idea. But I think that that's coming to, 
ahead in this country, and it looks like a lot of countries, where there's a con conflict between people who are thinking about us as a global human population and people who are um, really betting down to, no, it's really just about us. Um, and I think that's those three things paired together are really setting up um, the ability of people to go along with some of the things that are happening here um, that are concern, you know, concerning for those of us who look at the big picture and who are trying to critically think about what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. It's hard to keep up with it all. Yeah, it, it's, it really is. And as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, that idea of people that look after their own and people that look out there's also potentially it could it could be quite easy to see that as a generational conflict as well because you know people who have grown up in the social media um revolution where the world is just connected you know it's just one place and we're all you know we can speak to people we're speaking across the continent now um but but you know those people those perhaps younger generations it's not exclusive to younger generations of course but the younger generations are like hold on a second this is just one world and we're, we're kind of all connected and then you've got um world leaders that are basically trying to like close their countries off from the rest of the world and saying no no we've got to batten down the hatches this is just about us and our country and we can survive all on our own without any interference from anybody else and you can see the tension that that will and is causing i guess absolutely and there's a lot of condemnation and criticism of the millennial generation. Um, um, I don't know how that, if that's happening um, with as, as severely there as it is happening here in the U.S., but millennials are really maligned in a lot of ways, and I'm continually seeing them being people who are inspiring me. They're people who are connected. They're creative. They're passionate. They, they care about the condition that the world's getting left in and they're they're getting super motivated to to take what they've been or what they're getting left with and do something powerful with it and i find that incredibly inspiring so and i think you're absolutely right about um you know these are people that have that have grown up in a way that are grown up in a way that are connected so much more readily and intimately than the generations before them, myself included. You know, I'm, I feel like a dinosaur, I feel like a dinosaur online um, most of the time. And I'm, you know, scrambling to keep up. You know, I have the teens and the twenties in my life are constantly showing me the new thing. Like here, try this and look at this. And Hey, have you tried that? And so um, I think they have a different perspective of, what humanity is and who us is. Like, I think they have a wider perspective of us. And I find that inspiring. I think you're right. And, uh, and you know, the, the thing that we have over here, of course, is Brexit. And the younger generations were just devastated when that vote went through because, you know, we, we, we have grown up, and I'm 34 this year, Elizabeth, but I'll, I'll count myself as a young'un. <laughs> um, you know, I grew up in, in my whole life I've had Europe and, and known that I could go and live and work in France or Italy or Spain and just, you know, not have to worry about any visas and just go and work with my fellow Europeans. I see myself as a European um, and to have that, that taken away by a generation that are 
um, fearful. And I think I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it's fear. Yeah, it's fear of the unknown. And to an extent, I know we we've talked a lot, haven't we, about uh, compassion and holding a space for people who are fearful and trying to understand their perspectives because. You know, I speak to my grandmother sometimes, she's 92, and she talks about the good old days when, you know, back in the 50s when, you know, Britain was booming and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I think there's some rose-tinted glasses there, actually. But um, she struggles to understand why why anybody would want to go and work in a different country. You know, she struggles to understand the... the uh, she's fascinated that I have friends in different countries around the world. It literally blows her mind. But I think when I... When I talk to her, there's, a, there's an aspect of fear there as well because, you know, there's something about that that, well, if I've, if I've got my country and my home and my family, then I can almost keep tabs on it and I can regulate that. But you go global with me and it's like, ah, scary. Um, and world leaders like Trump, perhaps they're playing to that fear. I think so. And it's, I think, I, like, I have a, um, it's very common um, especially, I grew up in the Midwest, so rural Midwest. My grandmother um, was born and raised and um, grew up in a town of 400. And she was in, I think she was 80, 85, somewhere in her early 80s before she traveled more than two hours. She got on a first plane in her 80s. Um, and I think when you have a, a wide component of people like we do here in the U.S. who have who haven't done a lot of traveling. Everyone that they know looks and sounds and conforms to what's expected of them in their area. And I think that creates fear. It's it's a very easy way to set up us or them. People that don't look like me, people who don't sound like me, people who know a different language or come from a place that's so wildly foreign than anything I've exposed, been exposed to, that does create fear. And I think that's an old, a really old um, fight or flight amygdala of fear. Um, and I think we haven't quite make, made the distinction up in our frontal lobes that this fear is probably unfounded. I think we're still, like, we're falling back into. And I know for me, you know, and I'm, you know me, like, I love people. I love I, it's very easy for me to be compassionate and I'm struggling <laughs> with everything that's going on. And, and um, when I see people intentionally harming other people, that can be super challenging to remain in a compassionate state. And I think it's, I think you're, you're right on when um, we're talking about um, folks who are, are wistfully longing for what seemed like easier times. Um, you know, the world is infinitely complex. Just uh, one human is amazingly complex. You add a second human and try to have a relationship. And you've talked about this in your, your past podcast, how complicated things get. And then you add another person. And we're billions of people now, billions of people who can be easily connected. And it's easy for things to get very complex very quickly. And it's really easy for people to I think, fall back on, well, it used to be different. And that different, it used to be what, how it used to be is better because it's familiar. 
and that familiarity brings comfort. I think there's so many challenges currently. People don't know what to do, and so they just resist trying to move into the flow of getting connected with different people or trying something new because it's unfamiliar. And I guess when that when someone comes along and gives them a promise of um, reducing some of that unfamiliarity or rolling things back to the good old days, then those people who are fearful, it's it's a very it's almost like a oh thank goodness someone is mm-hmm. gonna someone's going to soothe this fear that I have. Someone's gonna make it how it was before. Um, you can sort of almost see the psychological. Uh, trap that 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 creates for those people it it absolutely and what's really interesting I've been observing this so some of the um, results of the policies that are putting putting the place here in the US are now impacting the people that voted for Trump and some of them are seeing oh my gosh like this like I'm losing my job Harley Davidson is leaving from right here in Wisconsin. People are losing jobs. People are are losing benefits and and they're directly impacted. And so some people are saying, well, I don't like how this is impacting me. And some people are digging in further and are willing to allow their lives to be deeply impacted financially health-wise, emotionally, in order to dig in at the, the others. So they're okay with their life going to shit <laughs> if it makes somebody else unhappy that that's happening to them. So I find that, that, that people would, un- I've always found it interesting that people would vote against their own best interest. But now to have people digging in that they voted against their own best interest, that they're seeing the impact and they're, they're digging in further um, because it's hurt. Like because it's emotionally hurting someone else to see them suffering. Like that's a level of diving into suffering that I, I can't quite wrap my brain around. As you were speaking about that, I was, I was thinking about Brené Brown and her, uh, her concept of shame and I was thinking you know perhaps, perhaps some of these people that have voted and are now seeing the impact are almost a little bit shameful that they put Trump into power but rather than deal with the shame and think oh do you know what actually I made a I made a I made a mistake here the the shame that they potentially and this is just a theory but the, the shame that they're feeling about that decision is manifesting in a way that you know Brené Brown would say the way to get rid of shame is to shame somebody else. So if you're feeling bad, we'll just make someone else feel worse, and then you'll, you know, then temporarily you might feel better. Um, yeah, because it is, it's a real kind of odd thing to do, isn't it? It's like people over here are being affected by Brexit, and we know that the public purse is going to be really affected by it. But people are like, yeah, but we'll have our country back, and it's like, I don't. I wonder if you can hear yourself, you know. <laughs> It's, it's odd. Right. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the shaming component. I think she, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that she brought that work into the public sphere when she did. 
because I don't know that people would have the bandwidth to be able to hear it here in the U.S. right now. But she had a few years to really get a lot of people um, familiar with her work and, and be able to do some of their own work around shame to create some space um, for others who are bumping up against it now. But I think a lot of people, um, you know, here in the U.S., we have such a, 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 a two options. There's only two options. It's yes or no. It's black or white. It's Republican or Democrat. And we, you know, you win or you lose. And we've really got um, such a, you only have the two options. There's no space for uh, paradox that it could be yes and no. There's no space for all of the possibility in between yes and no. And so people are, are digging down and I think that, that you're absolutely correct. You know, if they find out they're wrong, people are so unwilling to be wrong about anything. The shame of, of not being on the winning side and the shame of having made a poor choice and the shame of, um, you know, having your situation change or diminished or, or um, keep going back to being wrong. The shame of being wrong about something is important, especially when people have been so dogmatic about their positions versus like, we used to work together. People used to work together for the good of all versus um, this, this black and white thing. So I think the shame thing is a, is a huge component. And I think there's a lot of people who are, um, experiencing that and then not knowing what to do with it, not knowing how to name it, not knowing how to um, identify it, and um, not knowing how to do the self-reflection required to get released from that shame. And and it's huge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's, shaming it's component like, is devastating. Yeah, where do they discharge it? Because actually... You know, if you've read any of Brené Brown's books or you've read anything on shame, you know, I, I remember when I read it, it was like an epiphany moment. I suddenly was able to make sense of a lot of my feelings, and I recognised that when I was in a relationship and I was feeling vulnerable or I felt ashamed of something that I'd done, my automatic response was just to shame somebody else. You know, because that's the quickest way to to do it. And I suppose it's a nice segue into something else that we spoke. Um, when we spoke the other week about um, compassion. And again, you might have guessed I'm a bit of a Brené Brown fan. Um, she talks about... I love her too. <laughs> she's great. Um, uh, she talks a lot about, you know, shame cannot exist when there is compassion. Um, and if you, put, if you put shame and compassion in a Petri dish, uh, you know, shame will disappear. And the one thing that really kind of troubles me at the moment is some of the language that's being used on both sides of the political spectrum, both here in the UK, both in Europe, both over in the US, because um, in, in her book, Braving the Wilderness, she talks about dehumanizing language. Um, uh-huh. And she talks about when we start to refer to people as pigs, as animals, as rats and that kind of stuff, we start to enter into really dangerous territory. Um, And the reason for that, she says, is because when we start to dehumanize people, that allows us to treat them like they're not humans. 
And it's the only way that we can override the compassion in our minds, because if we recognize another human being as a human being, it's very difficult to be unkind and to be, um, for, for most people that is. So actually the tactic of dehumanizing um, is a very, very powerful tactic. And one of her quotes is that, you know, dehumanizing language has been a precursor to every act of genocide in history. Um, so when when we see that language being used by you know, the president of the United States, it's it's alarming. But when we see it being used by the people who oppose him, um, or in our country, the people who are, who oppose the current conservative government, and they start to call them, you know, uh, pigs and that kind of stuff, uh, that troubles me too. Because I think you know you're 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 trying to fight something using the same tactics as the thing that you're trying to to stop does that make sense yeah and i think there's something really complicated in that dynamic so there's a place where there's a a a large step and yet a fine line between standing up against oppression and becoming an oppressor yourself and it's it's a place where you have to have a lot of awareness and a lot of thought needs to go into to how how we operate because I see that happening. I've always been a, a very progressive. I was raised by progressives, very progressive um, ideology, and to see um, a, a, a component of the progressives here in the U.S. really devolving into that versus really standing strong for, you know, we're not going to tolerate this dehumanization we're, and we're not going to be shamed for um, being a, a, a progressive. I found it one of the first places I ran into this when I um, was becoming politically aware in my 20s was the, the old adage of being a bleeding heart. And I'm like, that was a bad thing. Like, it was, it was a bad thing if your heart bleeds for the suffering of others. I'm like, but that doesn't, like, aren't we supposed to have that? Are we supposed to have that as a human, this compassion and this connection to others, that if I see you suffering, that that's not a good thing for me. Um, and so I think there's a long history of, of, of that that's happened at least here. And it is a little distressing to see people um, going way over the edge and using the same tactics, the same um, cruel words and cruel actions, you know, but people are scared. So you go right straight back into fight, flight or freeze and people are fighting where they see um, oppression happening or the, you know, the potential of greater oppression happening. And so I think hopefully things will, my hope is that things will um, go back to a, a more um, compassionate, more connected, more center point at some point. At, you know, at the same time, like, I'm all for punching Nazis. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I am like the, you know, the person who, is constantly standing up for, you know, the the everybody 
I, you know, it goes back to me loving people. And at the same time, there's a place where we really have to take a firm line when you see people whose underlying um, ideology is that everybody but them should be dead. Like, that's not, that's not a humanistic perspective. And I'm so fundamentally care about humans in general. Um, it's a, it, like, I, I feel like I'm living in this, this, such a paradoxical existence, like holding in one hand, really holding out for compassion and love and the elimination of suffering and taking a strong stance against the systematic cultural and um, oppression of, of people that's going on. It's a very interesting place to hold both of those at the same time. It's so, Ooh, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. off my soapbox there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I feel, I feel you on that because, you know, I feel exactly the same. And I, I think when I saw all the protests that, that were here in this country when Trump came over and the rhetoric that was coming out, I actually went to one myself. Um, I think you saw the picture. I had a big, big sign that said, choose love. Um, and, you know, true hippie coming out in me there because no nobody there was one other person there with a sign that said love trump's hate and and all of the other signs were derogatory and dehumanizing about trump and i i guess what went through my mind was this uh, donald trump we i can't get into his mind i'm not sure as i'd want to but i think he's very fearful i think he's incredibly fearful deep down under all of that bluster i think he's a very insecure and fearful man so what happens when he comes over to a country like ours and he sees mass protests is it just reinforces his his fear as being legitimate um and the completely utopian uh, hippie version of me wanted to see the streets lined with people with big banners saying we love humans we love people and that kind of stuff but you're absolutely right it's such a fine balance between okay uh, we have to kind of like be seen to stamp out extremism where it's where it's present because if it's you know if it's killing people or if it's leading to chronic suffering then we absolutely can't accept that but at the same time it's almost like it's almost like you know putting more of that that um that negativity into the universe isn't going to ultimately solve that problem the general theme should be in my opinion love <laughs> But, you know, I, I recognize that I'm a bit utopian there. Um, maybe I need to get a bit more punchy, Elizabeth, <laughs> although I couldn't see it myself. Well, I think there's, I think there's a story um, that I believe is attributed to Mother Teresa where um, in the 60s, you know, they were asking her, like, come join our anti-war. You know, we're having an anti-war rally. Will you come? You know, it would make a big difference because you're Mother Teresa. And she said, you know, I will. I won't go to an anti-war rally, but if you have a a pro-peace rally, I'm there. So I think there's a paradox that we're currently experiencing of what are we standing against, and what are we standing for? I don't think that the world is ever going to be in a in a worse condition by having more love in it. And there's a place where we need to responsibly respond to people whose 
underlying desire is to eliminate large portions of the human population. And I don't think we have to give up our commitment because you and I have the same commitment. Um, I don't think we have to give up our passion and our commitment that people are fundamentally loving in order to stand up against oppression at, at all levels. And so there's, there's, I keep reminding the, my clients that if you can't make a difference at a big level, how can you make a difference at a small level? How can you connect with the stranger on the bus? How can you be bring in more compassion, more kindness, more generosity, more love into, into every interaction you have with a human being, including yourself? That, that um, you, I was listening, at, uh, re- listening again to one of your previous podcasts that I just loved where you were talking about, you know, connecting with yourself and, and remembering that you needed to be loved. Like if we take great care of ourselves, if we embrace that we are fundamentally lovable, then we can express that love to others. Now, that's not going to change public policy in the U.S. today, but it will change things for the person that we interact with and for ourselves. So I think there's, a, there's the small-scale things of how can we interact more powerfully and more lovingly with the people that we see and connect with every day, be it live or be it virtually, and then how can we transmit that into larger and larger community actions, the things in my neighborhood, the things in my small town, the things in my state, the things in, in, at, at, a, at a level of the country. So I think there's, there's the big scale and the small scale and the paradox of balancing both. Um, one of the things that I keep saying that, that distresses me is, is we keep having these videos of people spewing hate at someone. And there's lots of people recording, but nobody interrupting it. And I think one of the skills that we're going to have to get really great at is interrupting oppression when we see it and doing it in a way that's powerful and loving at the same time, which seems completely impossible probably for a lot of the people out there will probably be rolling their eyes at me even suggesting such a thing. Um, but I, I think it's possible. I think we just don't have a lot of practice or skill at that yet. Yeah, and I think um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about a video that I saw online, and, and you're right, These I see so many videos uh, on social media of um, really hateful things happening, and I'm thinking, what's the person behind the phone? What's going through their mind? Um, but there was this one particular video that stood out and it's a guy that kind of stumbles into, I think it's in Japan, he stumbles into a police uh, uh, station with a knife in his hand. And oh, yes. Have you seen the video? Um, I love that. It made me cry. <laughs> yeah, he stumbles into the police and he's got this knife in his hand and the officer was just so calm could clearly see that the guy was distressed, but within sort of three or four minutes, I don't think it was even that long, within a minute had talked to him to put the knife down. And then what happened next was just incredible. You know, they, they took the knife away. And then this police officer just hugged 
hugged this guy because he could just see that he was distressed. And I think the story was that he'd, he, I can't actually remember the story, but the, the, the event that had led up to him doing that was that he just kind of just l- lost it but because of something w- that seemed very legitimate and that police officer showed him compassion in a, w- in a way that completely diffused that situation and he left later that night without you know without any charges being made against him so that that was a really really powerful example of you know choose love i'm not saying that we should approach everyone with a knife uh, and give them a hug please don't <laughs> don't follow that <laughs> just disclaimer do not follow right. that advice uh, but it's it's powerful isn't it because we tend to um we tend to make judgments about people all the time um based on their behavior and then we act accordingly and and typically if we see someone in distress or they're acting aggressively it incites that fear response in us and as you uh, articulately said earlier that part of the brain that regulates and is rational just completely just switches off and and we go into a completely different mode but yeah m- maybe you're right maybe those skills are going to be needed because my sense is this isn't this climate that we're in at the moment of hate and um you know hatred rhetoric i don't think it's going to subside anytime soon no, it, it looks like it's going to hit a fever pitch. And I think I see a lot of people deciding, you know, making commitments about where they're going to stand. I see a lot of people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are building community and building connections and building relationships. So I see, and you know, we don't hear about this on the news. There's barely time for all the actual things that happened on most days much less hearing about how people are responding at an individual level that's powerful for people to know about. Um, And I think there is a way that um, you were talking about privilege in one of your previous podcasts, and I think that there are a lot of people who are starting to embrace and, and recognize, oh, yeah, I grew up in some privilege given where I live and what color skin I have and what my, how I identified gender wise. And, and people are learning how to use that privilege in a powerful way against a system that's not designed for it. And so I think there's a lot of great things happening. I think there's a lot of loving, compassionate, powerful things occurring. And we just, we don't, we're not getting to see them widely. Um, nobody's recording, you know, you loving up the person at the grocery store or, you know, connecting with the person at the grocery store. That's not, you know, YouTube worthy, um, but it's happening. And so I continue to hold out hope that all of this is, is giving people the opportunity to stand up and step out and really make a choice about, um, expanding their human capacity for things like love and compassion and generosity. Um, you know, it's giving people the opportunity to deal with their past and deal with the shame of their history. Um, and so that they can um, create a world um, that's more uh, powerful for everyone. And I know that sounds ideological, but it, I see it happening um, at a micro scale, human to human. I, I'm seeing it happening day to day. Um, 
we're just getting overwhelmed by what's happening at a big scale. And I'm hoping that these day-to-day small connections and um, will overtake the big picture at some point. But it's, it, it is a little concerning, <laughs> as you said. Yeah, I, what you're talking about is is micro actions. I I read this somewhere. Uh-huh. I, I do a lot of reading, and I I'm terrible because I can rarely credit the people that I've read. But um, it was it was basically the ripple effect. And actually, I think sometimes when you've got these global issues, when you've got dominant figures in dominant political leaders spewing hatred, it's really easy um, to have a mindset of well you know, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to change the you know, the president of the United States. So do you know what? I just won't bother doing anything um, because it's all going to shit anyway. So I might as well just look after myself. And and I suppose if you were to liken that to something that I saw about uh, pollution recently, it was a little meme and it said, it's only one straw, dot, 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 said 8 billion people. Um and, and that is, in essence, what we're talking about here is, you know, those micro actions, if everybody resigns themselves to the fact that the world's shit and, you know, uh, you know, it's going to be awful for such a long time, then there's a, a complacency or a um, almost like a, uh, you become complicit in it because there's just you, you don't take action. But even even looking after just yourself, like you said earlier, even if you can just look after your own well-being so that you don't go around projecting um, onto others, which is something that I'm really, you know, big on, is like, you know, even if it's just you that you can take care of, that's enough. Like, that's, that's more than enough um, to have a level of self-awareness where you can, you know, not go, not go around kind of putting your neuroses on everyone else, <laughs> in a way. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I really loved um, at the very end of the the podcast you did about depression and your experiences with depression. You made a really powerful um, um, I, I put forth a very powerful idea, which was, you know, why is it we don't talk about mental health? It's because everybody feels like there's something wrong with me, so we don't talk about it and. But we live in a culture that, one, promotes people getting depressed and having anxiety, and a culture where we don't talk about it. So I think there's, it's super easy to be defeatist when you're struggling in your own head alone. And I think this goes back to Brene Brown and the shame of struggling with what's happening in our own heads alone versus being willing to to speak about like this is this is I'm I'm devastated by this. I'm upset by this. I'm terrified by this. I'm angry about this. Like being able to express um, with people that as Bernice says, you know, have earned the right to hear it, and um, being able to express ourselves um, can make a huge difference. And that I think that's the our access to having that awareness and not becoming uh, um, following following the temptingness that that's not the right word um following the temptation of just falling into a defeatist attitude um, because it'd be easy to just lay down and say yeah i can't do anything about it versus 
kind of taking a stand of things are not going in a in a direction that's good for a lot of humanity and I'm not going to to tolerate this so I think there's there's um, something really important that's happening you know at that cultural level and um, in conflict with what's happening with our in our own brains at a at a basic chemical level um, so and the two seem so linked you know very often when I'm working with people um, I will or doing my talks I'll talk about my depression and the, what dep when I had depression it spoke to me like this it said don't tell anybody about it no one's interested this is your problem to deal with and you're weak because you can't and the biggest the biggest thing that I've um, found useful when I still to this day have low mood is I remember what my environment is you know I remember that I'm a uh, I'm living in a capitalist country that promotes individualization that promotes um, materialism that promotes consumerism that basically every day I wake up and walk around where I live I'm being told that I'm not enough and I'm being told that I'm not enough because that's the only way that the economy can get me to put my hand in my pocket. Um, okay. And the economy relies me on putting my hand in my pocket more and more every year to buy things that I don't need to fuel itself. So, you know, when when you're suffering in shame with depression or any uh, you know mental challenge and it's telling you that this is all your fault and this is about you and you've got to deal with it on your own, I say this, like look at the world around you, look at the environment that you're in, because it's not all about you. But, you know, what you're talking about is so powerful, which is the power of meaningful connection to the other, the power of community. And I think, you know, it is inspiring to see that communities are springing up. You know, in, in my city of Manchester, there are, there are online communities now that are meeting offline because they're realizing that actually I need to, I need to, this is going to sound a bit gross. I need to be able to smell you. I need to be able to touch uh -huh. your skin. I need to be able to look you in the eyes in a non-digital way and feel your connection to me. Um, there's something really healing about that. And I think, you know, as as economists have promoted individualization and neoliberalism has said every man for himself, and of course the American dream is, you know, everyone can be successful and this is the definition of success. And I, ha I take issue with the idea that everyone can be successful um, based on one definition of success. But, you know, that, that, whole, that whole projection of this is how your life should be, I think is, is led to mass suffering, which is probably why we've got 400 million people in the West living with depression. Rant over. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's not a shocker. You know, it's, it's, it's um, such a relief to so many of my clients when they share their story. And then I say, well, of course you would be depressed. Like, of course you would have that diagnosis. Look at what's, look at the, look at what's happened to you. Um, and I, I, I love the point that you're making about the American dream. And there's so, there's, there's so much shame that's put around if you're not living it. So people have mass, there's mass pretense about what that looks like for people. And then, of course, you would have anxiety and depression if you know that you're not living it, but you're trying to make, you're trying to look like you're living it. Like it's, it's, it's not surprising that 
Um, so many people are struggling. And I'm looking forward to the day, and this is this is my perception of, of, of mental health issues. We know so much more now about how our brain chemistry and our body chemistry impacts our emotions and our, our feelings and then how that gets expressed as emotions. Um, and the work that's continually being done about the intersection of our chemistry and the expression of that chemistry, um, I'm really looking forward to the point where mental health is just a subdivision of neural health, of other physical health, rather than something that's separate from um, other neurological disorders. So instead of, you know, you've talked about the, the, um, the shame that's put on people who have a mental health diagnosis versus there's a, even way back when I was in co college, I took a class of biological psychology and they talked about, here's how the brain works. And then if this chemical, if this chemistry is off, then this is how that turns into something that we can diagnose. Like way back when, I was just like, oh, this is neurological dysfunction and how we can respond to neurological dysfunction without shame and without hiding and without um, anything besides looking at people healing. And then how that intersects with everything that's going on culturally that drives people to have chemistry that's not healthy and well-balanced. So I think that's... And when you bring all those things together, you, you start to see the picture because actually, you know, if I had a broken leg, it's the age old, you know, argument. If I had a broken leg, people would be like, oh, no, of course you can't run that race. Don't be crazy. Like, we'll rally around and right. we'll support you. Uh, of course, you can take some time off work because you can't drive the two hours that it takes you to get in. But there's something about because it's invisible um, uh -huh. and and people can't, you know, wear a it's not visible to others. Then it's like, no, you should be. You should be going to work. You should be living the American dream. You should, you should, you should. And it's just a toxic loop because the whole the whole reason why people are possibly, well, not the whole reason, but the reason why some people have anxiety and depression in the first place is because they're trying to live up to this dream and then they can't live up to the dream, so they become depressed and anxious. And when they're depressed and anxious, they're shamed because they're not living up to the dream. I mean, <laughs> it's not rocket science, is it? Oh, no, and it's a big... Um you know, just it's a big self-perpetuating um, system. Um, you know, I've dealt with anxiety and depression since my since I was a teenager, and not knowing what it was, and then spending years trying to to hide it because I was self-employed and I didn't want to have a diagnosis on my record that would give me a pre-existing condition that would make it more difficult for me to get healthcare because I was self-employed. Like there's so many facets that we have to work on versus just having it be something that we could get support and help, compassionate support and help from. Um, 
And I think that's changing. I think the, I think things are starting to shift. I just saw someone talking about a study where they're starting to shift the language from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So instead of looking at a human and saying, what's wrong with you? How do we diagnose it? What do we do about it? We're looking at a human being and saying, what happened to you? And then given what happened to you, how can we support your healing from the past so that you can have a more successful future? Which is a completely different way of looking at any, you know, any dysfunction, be it physical and mental, emotional, spiritual. It's a, it's a whole new context for, for interacting with people who are struggling or suffering at any level. And I find that exciting and inspiring. And it sounds humane, you know, it sounds humanistic. It sounds like, here's like, how can my heart help yours? <laughs> exactly. Mm. I love that. Um, um, you were saying something about um, connecting with the heart or um, doing work that, that inspires your heart. Or, that's, here's all the things you said something and what I took out of it was really leading from the heart, um, you know, connecting with the heart, like really coming from your heart, which, you know, you and I are both very much about love. So that makes sense that we would be um, reaching for reducing people's suffering from that place. Elizabeth, we're, we're coming to the end of our time, which I'm, I'm bitterly disappointed about because I feel like we could talk <laughs> forever. Um, and when we get on the line, when we're not on podcasting, we do, we do go on and it's always enjoyable, <laughs> always enjoyable. But I guess I have a question for you about, you know, you've mentioned that you've, you've struggled with your own mental health and, um, and I was wondering if you had anything that you wanted to say to the listeners about how you deal with with when you find yourself in a wobble is there any like top tips that you would say i would say a lot, a lot of the work that i do with people is around resilience and i realized oh i've spent years and years building my own resilience and i think really the top thing is being connected being connected with other human beings at a deep level to the point where you can say, I'm struggling and I need your, I need you to shine some love and some light and some listening over here on me rather than suffering in silence. So I think one of the, my biggest thing is, is being able to reach out when I need to, but even more critically, having people who know me well enough that they can see that I'm struggling so much I can't even reach out and who are connected enough with me that they do so. So that connection, I think, is the most powerful, not only at that individual level, but having something larger than yourself that you can be connected to um, when you need to. Like there's tons of studies about how being generous with others 
makes a difference to your own emotional and mental health. So being part of a community, being connected at community level, being connected at, at um, uh, volunteering, being connected at, at that kind of level. Um, not only just the individual one-on-ones, but the, the being connected in a, a larger way. Because there's something about helping others that gives you some perspective and brings you present in a way that can um, short-circuit that depression and that anxiety enough that you can get back in, get back into those frontal lobes. So for me, it's all about connection. Connection, compassion, community, and love. Those feel like really nice notes for us to, to end on. Elizabeth, tell us how we can get hold of you. Tell us, tell us what you do, because you do it really well, but I will let you say in your own words. And how can people get hold of you? Because I had some coaching with you. It was absolutely fantastic. I would encourage anybody that feels like they've got a chemistry with you just from this podcast to reach out if they're looking for a coach. Um, but tell us in your own words what you do and how we can get hold of you. Absolutely. So I'm a coach and a speaker and a teacher, um, and I work with people individually and in groups. My, my website is areallybiglife.com, and I'm on across social media on A Really Big Life. So it's very easy for people to reach out, and um, I work mostly with people on resilience, on quieting that inner critic in their own head and on optimism on building optimism as a skill versus just settling so those are the main things i do and that's how to get a hold of me perfect i will post links to all of your uh contact details in the podcast bio um but it's been an absolute pleasure as always and i really appreciate you taking the time out to uh to meet with me and have this this podcast Thank you so much for having me. It is always an honor to get to be in your presence and to get to speak with you. So thank you. You're welcome. I love how at the end I said, you're welcome for my presence, Elizabeth. What I meant to say was thank you. Um, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. I felt like we could have gone on so much longer about these topics, but Elizabeth is just so inspirational. She has so many wise words and such a lovely perspective on humanity. So if you enjoyed the podcast, please like, comment, share, do all those things. I really appreciate you listening. really appreciate you following. Take care, go lightly, stay safe, and we'll speak again soon. Bye.